And as we go back to 1 Samuel tonight, you can turn there. David can sing that. And in even some of the Psalms that he's written during this time, he makes it clear that he sees God's hand and he is relying on God. We did come to this passage last week that um, is a little puzzling to us. And I even said that your interpretation may be a little bit different than mine on this. And we looked at uh, chapter 27 and, and that's fine. It's not a matter of doctrine. It's just a matter of, of things that we're not really given all the details on. And so as David decides to take his group, including his family and his soldiers um, and their families and um, go over to the Philistine side, so to speak, or seemingly, um, we're not told. God is at this point the narrator of the passage has not is not mentioning God at all. So we're not really told if David sought God's advice. Um, and the one interpretation is that at this point, David made a major decision without really seeking God's advice. And it, it seemed to, it, it was a wise choice from a human practical level, but maybe that David um, still was in the wrong by not seeking God's advice. I tend to take the other path that everything that has led up to this uh, has described David as seeking God's will. Um, he has godly advisors that God has given to him, many godly advisors. And I think the narrator at this point just expects us to, um, to see, to accept that David has sought God. And really, from a practical wisdom stand standpoint, this is the type of thing that it seems like that, that only God could give David. The fact that he goes to the Philistine king, he knows that Saul is still going to pursue him. And we see at the end of the chapter that Saul decides not to pursue David anymore, only when he finds out that he's crossed over to the Philistines. So obviously Saul still was planning on pursuing David um, against his word. Can't trust the word of King Saul at this point at all, right? So David knew that he was still on the run and that he, he had a family and his men had families and you just can't live life on the run and bring, give your family stability and security. It's not protecting them. So David goes to Achish and says, uh, we will help you. Will you give us a town? We don't want to live in the town of Gath with you, probably for moral reasons. It would be, there'd be too many temptations and they don't want to use up the resources of the Philistines. They want to be independent on their own. And King Achish says, that's a great idea. David could still help me and be independent, not using up the, the resources of the city here. So he gives him a, a town named Ziklag, and David and his, uh, his people are now independent. They're able to do what they want, and they um, continue to follow God's commands for Israel beyond what Israel was willing to do at that point and destroy commit to a holy destruction, the enemies of God's people. David continues to do that, and then he brings the spoil to King Achish, and Achish says, wow, David, this is great. What have you done? And David gives him more general terms, not lying, but not telling him all the details. Well, we went to this area and to this area, and we, we gained victory. In effect, 
he was wiping out the enemies of Israel, probably the allies of King Achish, but Achish doesn't know this. And Achish, when we left last time, was very happy about this, saying, oh, certainly David is in my corner now, and his people, um, are, that he has become a stench in the nostrils of his own people because he's on our side. And so all of this was, was working out well for David, seemingly for Achish. He doesn't know David's true intentions, except that at the very end here, at the end of chapter, or at the beginning of chapter 28, and we left off with this. We'll look at that again, verse 1. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. And David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And for those of you that take the first interpretation that David shouldn't have been um, on the side of the Philistines, you would look at this and say, see, now David's in a real pickle here. Now he's gotten himself in a difficult situation. He should have sought God's wisdom for this. And um, it is kind of an awkward situation. Achish has kind of made David his bodyguard. And David's like the superstar. Remember, songs are being written about him in Israel, and the Philistines have heard those songs. And so Achish realizes that he has David, the superstar of Israel, in one sense, on his side. And he says, we're going to go fight Israel, and you're going to help me, David. And you don't get a choice in the matter. I need your help. Well, what does David do? He's very general in his verbiage again here, right? You will know what your servant can do, and we'll see what David means by that soon. David's very general here. He doesn't actually tell Achish that he will fight for him. He just says, okay, king, you're going to see what me and my men can do. Well, what does that mean? Well, to Achish, it means very well. That's great. I will make you my bodyguard for life. And it's interesting. I believe the King James says, keeper of my head. This is kind of humorous if you thought about this. Here is King Achish saying, David is my bodyguard or describing David as the keeper of my head. And yet, what is David known for with Goliath? Helping Philistine heroes lose their heads. <laughs> and here King Achish says, you're going you're gonna to keep my head intact. Hmm, I think Achish is a little too hopeful here. Well, now we're wondering what's going on, and all of a sudden we have one of these to be continued, and now over in another part of town, we're going to go to another story entirely. Oh, the narrator is, is uh, heightening the drama here, right? But this next story is one of those ones, those strange ones in the Bible where we really have to walk carefully here to kind of work through what's really going on. Uh, I'm going to ask, uh, let's see, Hudson, can you go get me a thing of water real quick, a bottle of water? And let's look at verse three. Now Samuel had died and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. The narrator right at the beginning here of this turn to a different story entirely reminds us that Samuel had died. Now we already knew that. Why do we need to know that again? Well, the point is he's been dead for a while and they buried him and the Jewish mourning period is over for Samuel. And that's important to note in this strange, disturbing episode of Saul's life. We need to know that Samuel has been dead for a little while. 
We'll find out more here in a minute. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers or wizards out of the land. Um, the Philistines, okay, well, that, that's getting ahead of things here. Uh, now the narrator, he first of all wants us to know that Samuel's dead. And next he wants us, he's stressing Saul's commendable work in the past of removing all of the known mediums and spiritists. What are those? Or as some of your translations say, that, that wonderful long word, necromancers. That's just an interesting word to say, isn't it? What, what is a necromancer? Well, they're basically those who claim at least to talk to the dead. And this is going to lead us into one of the stranger events accounted throughout the Bible. And whenever we get to one of these strange um, narrations, we have to proceed very carefully and examine the details carefully. And that's what we're going to do tonight as well, so that we have a full understanding of this. And so um, the, the author obviously wants us to understand that in the past, Saul had removed these people from the land of Israel. Why? Well, God made it clear in his law in Leviticus 20, verses 6 through 8. Um, and it says this, if a person turns to mediums and necromancers, pouring after them, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. And in this passage in Leviticus, this warning appears in a section that seems to, although we know that all sin is grievous to God, in this section of the law, it does seem like God is listing the most egregious sins. Right before he lists this sin in Leviticus, he talks about his people not going after uh, the false god Moloch and sacrificing their own children to him. Certainly an egregious, awful sin. And God says, if you do that, you'll be put to death. The very next thing he says is if you turn to those people, mediums, and spiritualists who talk to the dead, you will be cut off. And it seems in the context here uh, that there's also the death penalty that can be involved in this as well. And it is interesting as well, among these great sins that God's listing in Leviticus, the very next one is for children to not uh, dishonor their parents. Interesting as far as these great sins. And then after that, there's adultery. So my whole point is, this was one of those sins, and especially at this time in Israel's history, this was considered one of the most egregious sins that you could commit, was going after witchcraft, going after um, those who, who um, found their power from someone, their power source from someone other than God, than Yahweh. And anyone that would be involved in that, what, what's the opposite of God's power? In one sense, who's his enemy? Well, Satan. So these are folks who obviously get their power from Satan. And as far as Israel is concerned, and, and Saul was very notable in trying to get rid of all these folks on purpose because God's people were supposed to depend upon him and seek their power from him. And Saul had worked hard to eradicate this practice from among God's people. So we have to compare that, his actions in the past, with his current actions, and we're going to see how desperate this king truly was, okay? So let's continue. 
as the verse four, the Philistines assembled and gathered and encamped at Shunem and Saul gathered all Israel and they encamped at Gilboa. All right, I have a map here. I'm going to have Hudson send around so you all can see. Take special note of, you know, I, I had Hudson get my water. Uh, Luke, can you come here? Take special note of where Mount Gilboa is, where Saul found himself in relation to a town called Endor. That's important. And notice, um, you'll see here on the map, these areas that are mentioned in this chapter. It's just for um, reference for you to help. Okay. Um, so Saul gathers his mighty army. The Philistines have assembled their mighty army. And it looks as if they're at a, they're not just trying to eradicate um, or trying to win a battle over Israel, but it seems like they're going after a specific well-known trade route that if they captured, the Philistines captured, that they would be able to benefit from and find much financial gain from. So the Philistines have a reason for this. It will benefit them financially and um, have access to goods and things that they don't currently have access to. And that's their goal. And so they're confident enough in their numbers. And the king Achish is confident. He has David, the superstar of Israel with him, that they're going to go up against Israel. And Saul gathers his armies together and they encamped at Gilboa. You'll see that on the map. There's one problem. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. He goes out to meet the enemy, but when he views the enemy's strength for himself, his own personal confidence and strength leave him. Saul is literally gripped with fear, with terror. And I wonder if that's intensified. Remember that fearful spirit that God has allowed him to be plagued with? I think that's probably intensifying his fear and terror here as he realizes what he's up against. So David is fearful, or, or excuse me, Saul is fearful, and he's desperate. And so in his desperation, he again tries to turn to the Lord. But these are awful words. It's too late for Saul. God is silent for him. When Saul saw the armies of the Philistines, he was afraid, verse 6. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, Saul usually only inquires of the Lord in this way when he's desperate. And he's disobeyed God too many times, and the Lord did not answer him. And he, go, he goes through all the normal avenues that God would answer his people. By dreams, he doesn't have someone who can interpret his dreams. Or by the Urim, remember, that's through the priests. The priests have that. And what did, what did Saul do? He eradicated, he wiped out a whole village, a town of priests in Nob. And the one priest that was left, Abathar, escaped to David. David has the Urim and the Thummim. And none of the prophets are speaking. Samuel's dead. So Saul goes to all the normal avenues to talk to God. And he's totally cut off from communication with God, pursuing every means, desperate here. And God is silent to him now. And so in desperation, Saul is now going to turn to the worst option possible, actually seeking guidance from satanic sources. All right, and that's what he says here, verse 7. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. I thought Saul had eradicated all those people. 
And yet, isn't it interesting here? There is still a well-known medium who is hidden away but access, accessible in, in a town called Endor that's about six miles away. And his servants happened to know about her. His servants said to him, behold, there is a medium at Endor. Kind of reminds me um, of the times during Prohibition where you weren't allowed to have alcohol, but in all the small towns, they knew where kind of knew where the local still was or whatever. And for the right people that were looking for one, they could let them know. Well, this is kind of that same thing. This is not uh, allowed. And yet everybody knows where to find a person like this if they want to find them. So Saul says, great. Verse eight. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went he and his two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. Saul obviously understands the evil of his actions here, right? And so he goes to seek out this medium in disguise and clandestine at night. Why? Well, he can avoid both the scrutiny from the Philistine soldiers, and he can hide his identity from this woman as well. Very important. And he comes to her and he said, then divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. And here we have Saul really at maybe his lowest point where he directly asked help from an opponent of his God, from Yahweh, to bring up a spirit from the dead. God had directly forbidden this. I just read it to you in his law. Saul had been careful, probably with Samuel's influence, to cut off all these people. And now in desperation, he's going to the very source of evil and rebellion that he should have never had a part in. Um, and he asked for her to be ready to call someone up from the dead. And the woman said to him, now, many times this person is known as the witch of Endor, right? If you've heard that before, that sounds kind of poetic, but really she's a medium. So we'll call her the medium of Endor. And she said to him, surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? Even the witch protests his request. She's aware of how efficient Saul has been in getting rid of those who practice witchcraft. And she knows that she's taking her life into her own hands by even considering to do this at this point. She suspects a trap, and she's pretty insightful in that way. But look what Saul does here. It's bad enough that he's seeking after this witch's, this, this medium's help. But then he does something even worse. This may be even one of the worst things that he does. Verse 10, Saul swore to her by the Lord. As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. He swears by the name of the Lord that this medium will not be harmed in performing an accursed action of sin. One uh, commentator said it this way. Saul's oath invoked the Lord to grant immunity to the one who broke the Lord's command. It turned God against himself. Such an oath was not only foolish, but actually blasphemous. From a writer named Bergen there. Saul commits blasphemy in this oath where he promises protection for this woman. Everything Saul does here is wrong. Now, as we continue, there's a lot of questions that arise for the reader in the ensuing details um, as we continue. Um, verse 11, then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me. So the first question is, um, does this medium 
Is she able to access real spiritual power or is she some sort of type of tricky magician in the past? And again, there's scholars really work through this. This is such a strange narrative that I really want to take time and help us to think through the details so we come to the right conclusion here. Anybody have any thoughts? Is she for real? Tom? Tom just says yes. Okay. Anybody else have another thought? All right. Um, Obviously, her reputation and her confidence of success here in calling up the dead point to some level of real dark magic and satanic power, right? But then why does this happen in this way then? And let's continue, if that's the case. Um, The woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. In verse 12, when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. Well, if she's for real, why is she so afraid when she does what she's asked to do? Why does this cause her literally to shriek in terror? Bill? Because it was Samuel himself, as opposed to another spirit that would come up personally. Okay. All right. Tom? Okay. So we could, could we put it this way? Then maybe she's experiencing a type of power that's beyond what she's used to. I think that's maybe a good way to describe this. Um, Do you think she realized it wasn't perfect? Hmm. That could be. I'll answer more of that here in just a minute. Um, but I think you guys are onto something here. She's obviously experiencing a power far greater than she had ever worked with before. And also somehow the rising form that comes up communicates to her that this man next to her who's called her to do this is indeed the king, King Saul. And she realizes the full extent of her life being in danger. So look at that. The woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. And so I think she's also terrified here because she realizes the very king that's been destroying and wiping out all these people is standing there with her. And the spirit that's rising up has let her know that. And she's terrified that she's going to lose her life. So both of these things, I think, are going on here. And Saul, of course, he has no time for that. Oh, don't worry about that. I'm not going to hurt you. Uh, Let's get on with this. Do not be afraid, the king said to her, verse 13. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. Now, that's the second question. What does the woman refer to as the form? Why does she refer to it as a God? Ever thought about that? What's going on there? Strange. Leslie? Okay. Yeah. Pastor. She obviously is referring to this particular this thing or this image as having some sort of power, maybe in a lesser way. Pastor. Um, I think what's going on here yes, is probably the belief of the dead becoming like gods, possessing power beyond mortals, explains her description here. Do we see that today in, in cultures? People that die turn into gods. There are cults and religions that believe that. You know, there's a Christianized version of that. Don't we even see it in TV shows and different things over the years about how 
people die and they become angels and God sends them back to earth more powerful than they were before. There's even a Christianized version of that in our culture today. Um, that's unfortunate. Obviously, people don't turn into angels. And I know there's some favorite Christmas movies and some themes and things. Maybe I'm attacking your favorite Hallmark movie. I'm sorry. But that really doesn't happen. Okay, right? Dead people, dead Christians don't come back as angels to help God out while they're here on earth. But it's the same type of thing. You know, it's been around for a long time, this idea of people that die come back more powerful than they have before. I think that's probably what's going on here. Tom, did you, were you going to say something else? Well, I mean, we're seeing more and more. And Satan has always operated um, and, and, and powerfully. But I think even in our own country, we're, we're sensing that more and more than we had before. The power of Satan at work, the adversary in, in our lives. Um, and I'm not trying to get too much in the details here for details sake. But folks, there's a lot of different interpretations about this really strange passage. And you may, somebody may talk to you about this at some point. And I, I want us to make sure that we've thought through the details. We'll probably get back into this next week so that we can answer and give accurately what's going on here. I just had a relative recently while we were away, just kind of just out of all the things they could have asked me about the Bible. They said, so what do you think about the passage in Genesis where in Noah's times, you had the giants and the sons of God that were wedding the daughters of men. And that was, they were really interested and wanted to know my take on it. Now, and of all the things I wanted to talk about, that wasn't top 10 on the list. But at the same time, I wanted to make sure that I had an accurate answer for that, because I want people to know that scripture does have logical explanations. Now, I'm not going to give you that explanation tonight. You can ask me afterwards. But I think we always need to be prepared with strange, um, seems strange to us narratives to be able to work through them and give the right answer into what God's doing in each of these passages. And that's why we're, we're taking the time that we are with this. Okay. So Saul asked for further details and she provides them for him. Let's continue here. He said, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. And so Saul realizes, wow, she's really, I don't know what he's thinking at this point. If she's done this or something has helped her. But he realizes in his mind, this is Samuel, and he bows to pay respect and honor to Samuel, realizing that that's the case. Now, we're going to talk about one more thing here and get back to this next week. Okay, here's one, probably the greatest question that we have out of all this, right? Was this really Samuel? You ever thought about that? Now, some of you may think, well, of course. There's actually a lot of interpretations. There's a lot of Jewish interpretations um, through the years, and I'll just give them to you just so you have an understanding of how people reacted something like this in a different way. Here's a few of the, the interpretations, that this was an actual raising of Samuel, but it was through satanic power that Satan actually raised Samuel from the dead. Or 
Another option, it was a deception, like a really good magician is able to pull a really astonishing trick. And somehow this woman was a really good magician and able to deceive in this way. Or God raising up a demon who looked like Samuel. Or another option, a demon acting on his own to deceive Saul. Now, here's some more modern interpretations. One, this might be a vision brought on by hallucinatory drugs. That's a little out there. <laughs> this might be some sort of psychosomatic experience. It's all in Saul's head, not real. Or Satan himself disguised as Samuel. Okay? Now, so you have an idea of what people talk about and, and debate with this. Do you have any thoughts as to what? what this is, the validity of any of those? Okay. Initially, I'd say 15 and 60 would say it was Samuel. Again, and Samuel, in the beginning of 16, then said Samuel. But in 14, the verse, and Saul perceived that it was Samuel. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that brings up another question then. If this is not really strong satanic power, then what was the harm? Why, why was God so adamant in saying that this was a sin? Because regardless of, of whether this was Satan's power or not, it certainly was someone putting dependence on something other than Yahweh. And so that in and of itself was wrong enough, right? Regardless of whether this is Satan or not. But let's look at the facts. Pastor, yeah. Explain what disquieting means. Uh, Is that like coming out of rest? Okay, where, what verse is that in? Well, 15. 15. Okay. Oh, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Um, we'll get to that. It's basically, he said, he basically, what Samuel is saying is, why are you pursuing this wrong way of trying to? get my attention, get a hold of me. Why are you committing this sin? He's confronting Saul right away with his sin. No pleasantries or anything. Saul, why are you doing this? This is wrong, okay? So that's what Samuel's going, that's what's going on there. Well, this is important. Let's look at the facts as we finish up here to know what this is going on here. What does the text state plainly? It states plainly that the woman saw Samuel and that Saul recognized it was Samuel. It just says that plainly. Another aspect of this, her strong reaction to Samuel's appearance indicates that it was genuine, right? A third aspect, when Samuel does speak to Saul, we'll see this next week, he alludes to actual events that he and Saul had experienced together. How else would they have known these certain things if it wasn't actually Samuel? And then just as important, probably the most important here, the last aspect, Samuel resumes his role of prophet and judge and delivers a message from God. So the simplest and best answer is that this could only have happened by the power of God. And in his grace, he is allowing Saul to have one more encounter with the prophet who had had significant influence in his life, even though we're going to see next week, this was not a message that Saul wanted to hear at all. But it also emphasizes the great sin that Saul had committed against God in a memorable warning for God's people throughout history. 
So what do you do when you come to strange passages like this and you're trying to apply them to our lives? Well, I've got a couple here. Folks, I think this is obvious to us, but just as a reminder, again, Christians have no business seeking information from any satanic or occult source at all. Not even playing around with it as a game, the dark magic, the occult. Our trust must always be in God and not Satan, his foe. And if that, if you're still kind of wondering about that sometimes, this makes it clear. Stay away. It's wrong. Don't play around with that. Don't be creative in seeking alternative sources of dependence. We must trust in our Heavenly Father at all times, right? And if God feels distant, self-assess your situation and repent of sin that has distanced you from regular fellowship with him. And isn't it true as believers, we can always find forgiveness for our stubbornness and sinful habits when we repent and turn back to God. And another thing that we see here in Saul's life, we continue to see this. What is the greatest life of fear and, and misery that we can experience is a life without God. When we reject God in the way that Saul has, we will find ourselves constantly battling fear and misery. And it's kind of like that old question that we ask ourselves when we go through really difficult things. How do people do this that don't know the Lord, that rejected God? Well, they live in fear. They live in misery. They live disturbed as Saul is here. And we want to, even as we go to prayer tonight, we want our dependence to be all on God, trusting in him. Lord, you have the answers, like David, and not, don't be like Saul. Depend on David. Even if we make mistakes, David repents. He turns around. He goes back to God. Saul is constantly trying to do things on his own, his own way, and has rejected God. And that is a miserable, fearful way to live. So let's not do that as we go to prayer tonight.